The world is rocked by a horrific massacre in New Zealand. Fox report that the last ISIS stronghold has officially fallen. Trump says the U.S. should fully recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan. And we kick the show off with a quick visit from Thani Abu Hamid. I'm Winston R. Holland, and this is Mideast News Brief. I made a rookie interviewer mistake last week and did not ask Thani Abu Hamid before the broadcast ended how people could follow him and his ministry online. Also, there's more to Thani than meets the eye, I found out, uh, to borrow an exhausted Transformers maxim. So I asked if Thani would drop back by the studio for a few minutes since he is still in the States. He is not back in Lebanon yet, and he graciously agreed. So Thani, welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Absolutely. Cool, cool. Okay, so before I, I get to Thani, um, I have to acknowledge, and we're going to be getting into this quite a bit for the first uh, part of this broadcast, the unspeakable tragedy that happened when a deranged white supremacist gunned down 50 people in two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. I could hardly believe it when I heard it, but sadly, reality is reality, and my heart and prayers, even if people don't like me to say that apparently, my prayers go out to the families and everyone affected by the massacre. We're going to get into more details about the massacre after a quick visit from Thani. As boy, there's a lot of mudslinging going around, and this is being used as a political football in some pretty bad ways. This is a tragedy, plain and simple. And given the fact that the man's political views, as we'll see shortly, uh, really do not line up with Trump's or his supporters really much at all, it really makes you wonder why so much blame is put on him for this, even indirectly at times. This tragedy is just simply evil, and that's all it is. And it's no way to promote your political agenda, regardless of what side of the aisle you are on, whether you're on the right, whether you're on the left. I don't care. We don't need to be using it. We need to uh, pray for those people. We need to bless those people. And we need to support uh, that, uh, that society's, those people's recovery from that horrific tragedy. You know, but, but for this man, for this particular individual who will, go, who will remain unnamed, what was his ultimate agenda in carrying out these atrocities and have certain politicians fallen into the trap he explicitly laid for them and doing exactly what he wants. And he said in the manifesto that he, um, that he posted online. So uh, it's pretty insane, actually, what his ultimate agenda is. And it's, it's pretty audacious and something that I'm not concerned at all is actually going to happen, but it does seem like there are certain politicians that are falling into the traps that he's laid out for them. So we'll get all, into all of that in a minute, uh, uh, plus more. But first, uh, let's talk with our good friend, Thanny. Uh, Thanny, thanks again for dropping into the show. Um, how can people follow what you are doing in Lebanon? Well, uh, we have an email, of course, um, you can get in touch with us at contact at theabuhamads.org. That's T-H-E-A-B-U-H-A-M-A-D-S dot org. Uh, you can reach us at that email if you just want to talk or you want to ask questions or uh, anything like that. We can add you to our newsletter if you like. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, uh, Thani Abuhamad, T-H-A-N-I, Abuhamad, like I just said earlier. And we'll um, post a, 
I, maybe we can just post these yeah, links at exactly.com so people mm-hmm. can, uh, can get it that way. So you can find me there, and uh, if you're interested, I can add you to a closed group that we have on Facebook. It's closed for security reasons, but, um, but we'd love to, if you're interested in what we're doing, we'd love to meet you and, and talk with you, if, even if it's just over the Internet, just to um, see, you know, who you are and uh, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, you can follow us at that, at, you know, that email, or you can uh, find me on Facebook. Now, what's the best way people want to actually support your mm-hmm. ministry in Lebanon financially and, and prayerfully? Yeah. You know, I guess the, probably prayerfully the email list or Facebook groups would be yeah. the best way, right? If they want to support you guys financially, how would they do that? Um, again, hit me up at that email, contact at org, and we can start talking about it. Um, we would love to, we, we love to partner with people. Um, you know, we see it uh, as a kingdom effort. You know, we... we uh, we do need help financially. Uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend like uh, like we we don't have that need. It costs money to live, right? It costs money. Yeah, money if, rules the if, world. Yeah, and if you're um, ministering full time, mm-hmm. you're not able to work a regular job to bring in income, and so right. of course that's you're going to need to have income sources from people who believe in what you're doing, right? And that's support your your work on the field, which is incredible stuff you guys yeah. are doing. So yeah, if you find it in your heart, I'd love to talk to you. Um, we can. Uh, you know, talk over email, especially if you're not in the Houston area. And uh, yeah, let's just, um, let's talk it, talk it out. So hit me up at that email, contact at theabahamas.org, and we'll link it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, also, uh, if you would share a little bit with us about this kind of separate yet connected world you have been a part of for some years. Uh, mm-hmm. Thaney is actually an audio engineer by trade, but he is also a bit of an artist. I hear you are you're a gangster rapper. Okay, okay. <laughs> not not a gangster. Not rapper. a gangster. Oh, okay but, okay. but a rapper, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I studied music in college. Um and uh so yeah, I did study audio engineering in college, but um I also my mo- I mean, my mom was an opera singer when uh when we were growing up. So music is in my music is in my family. Um and uh you know, throughout my whole life I studied music. Um in college, actually, I, I ended up um, getting involved in some um, the kind of inner city Dallas uh, Christian hip hop realm. So I joined oh, some nice. guys there. Yeah, it all started because I I was actually a, like a nerdy white kid who was learning how to beatbox in acapella groups <laughs> in high school. But beatboxing is you know hip hop in origin. So uh, some I guys, did not know that. I know nothing about. <laughs> I'm, I'm very white. Very so, very white. So. I, I did some beatboxing. People, you know, found me out, and I I got thrown into a whole new world. And oh, that's um, cool. So from all that, I I uh, started to become a, a kind of a, an artist. Um, I put out a couple of albums, um, kind of in the jazz, hip hop realm, and then some electronic music. Um, but if you're interested in hearing any of that stuff, um, you can find me on Spotify, Amazon, just under the the nomaker Thani, T H A N I. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, okay. That's me. <laughs> oh, great. And we'll uh, we'll link to all of that. Um, so that's the main way people can get a hold of your work. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes. I mean, any streaming service, any, any uh, you know, music store, you should be able to find my work. Nice, yeah. nice. Online Very, music store. I don't yeah. have hard copies. Yeah. Yeah. But. Very cool. And actually, I should mention, Mideast News Brief is not only in iTunes now, it's also in Stitcher, mm. Spotify, and TuneIn as well. So people can, just a little little side plug there for my gig. Uh but uh, but while you're there, type in T H A N I and find 
Thani's work. That's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, I've, I've heard, a, I, uh, last week I heard a brief clip of it. I'm like, hey, this guy's pretty good. So uh, I'm excited to get you back on to be able to, to talk about it. Um, uh, real quick, um, I should probably say, mention that Thani appearing on the program is in no way an endorsement mm. of any of my usual haranguing of Middle East information. Uh, my opinions are my own. And Thaney is gracious enough to appear on the show despite the possibility of severe guilt by association. So thank you, Thaney, for being able to, uh, to come on and share your ministry, how people can support you, the work you're doing and have done as an artist. Even though there, we might have disagreement at times about certain things, I, I really, really appreciate that. Um, because I think his perspective on what's going on in Lebanon is really a... a perspective that you're really only going to get from someone who lives in Lebanon, you know? So to have someone there on the ground who's seeing what's going on and can report back to us is extremely valuable, not to mention to have him here in studio is is extremely cool. So again, thank you for being on the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, is, is there anything else you want to say before you go? I didn't prepare him for this question. No, <laughs> all, I mean, all that I would say really is, um, you know, I think what's going on in the Middle East is incredible. I mean, I'm talking from a spiritual standpoint, but I'm thinking, um, you know, things are changing. You know, politically, we're seeing, it can get, um, from what you see on the news, maybe you can get pretty discouraged about yeah. what's happening. But um, there there are, there's a big picture thing happening, I think. You know, it's, uh, don't don't get swept away by all of the, the, the harsh or the violent things that you may see there's some other there's some incredible stories happening so. amen amen we talked about that a lot yeah. last week uh, and really one of the best sources for that we mentioned get the voice of the martyrs magazine they're going to be giving you the spiritual insight that the uh, mainstream press and even people like me don't focus on um, I like to bring those stories up from time to time because I hope that this this broadcast is maybe a little different than what than what you normally get a good mix of the geopolitical and the spiritual. So, uh, but that's a great that's a great source for me. So, last and probably most important question: We can still do lunch after this, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I, just wanted, I wanted to make sure that's that's most important. Um, so, great. Well, Thanny, thanks again uh, for stopping by. Yeah, and I. Who knows, maybe we'll have you on for a full thing one more time before you head back to Lebanon. Just hit me up. Okay, cool. And then uh, I think we have some ideas of some, of some stuff we might do. Uh, but then otherwise, um, I'll, have to, I'll have to hit you up in, in Lebanon. Yep. On the ground. Do some, do just, some yeah. uh, on-the-ground reporting there. So Exactly. In increase my, uh, my, my journalistic breadth and <laughs> experience. So well, it, it needs it. It needs it badly. But we're going to have to rendezvous in Jerusalem as well, you know. So if we, we uh, hit Beirut, hit Jerusalem... I think uh, that'd be a fun trip. So, yeah. um, oh, and a, a quick question. I mean, how easy is it to travel like Lebanon to Israel, or are there some obstacles? Um, if, if, like, if on if you're coming into Lebanon, and your passport has a stamp that says that you are in Israel, they won't let you in. Okay. So there are ways to go around it. Sure. <laughs> All you got to do is you just ha maybe get another a passport, you know, a, like a second passport, or you can uh, travel through a, a different 
country, that kind of thing. Like you okay. can go through Cyprus or okay or Turkey or something like that. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, between the two, I know you can't. You can't you go one can't to the other. Go, you're not yeah, going. The border is closed. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, the conflict is you know as yeah. you know is yeah. is, is pretty. Tense. And we're going to get into this but, broadcast. You know, kind of what uh, Hezbollah has actually been doing down oh, at the border wow. yeah. with border tunnels and and uh, or. Yep, and that kind of stuff. So it's it's pretty intense around there. So there's probably some good security reasons to be careful at the border when you got Hezbollah camped out uh, down there, and they're working with Iran and Syria and all that. Um, but uh, okay, cool. We'll, we'll get there. We'll one figure way. it out. We'll yeah. figure it out one we'll way, one way out. or another. But we we got to make that happen. I've been I've been dying to go back to Jerusalem, and uh, now I'm dying to go to Lebanon. So uh, <laughs> I think it'll, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So all right. Well, thanks again, Thanny. Yeah, Appreciate my it. pleasure. Okay. Now, let's head back to New Zealand, where a horrific tragedy occurred eight days ago at two mosques in Christchurch, the Masjid al-Nur Mosque and the Linwood Masjid Mosque. Like I said, this tragedy has sadly been politicized in a pretty ridiculous way, and as we'll see, the guy has a pretty muddled political ideology and even said in his manifesto, quote, conservatism is dead, thank God. So we've got to be very careful about where we pigeonhole this particular guy so that we can then end up blaming, you know, a whole group. Uh, this guy was all over the place. This guy was obviously unbelievably mentally unstable to carry out a, an act as, I mean, it's just monstrous, uh, as monstrous of that. But first, I thought this article by Dr. Michael Brown sums up a proper response to the massacre while also placing it in a larger context. This, is, uh, this was pub- published on March 16th, a, a reasoned response to the massacre of Muslims in New Zealand. And of course, I'll have this linked up at MideastNewsBrief.com. Dot com. But I just want to hit some points on it because I think his heart is good behind it, it as well as helping to expose... Oh, by the way, this this guy is, for one, he's not what the left wants him to be. But number two, there's also a, a lot of tragedies that go on even, uh, amongst Christians by Muslims that go underreported or not really reported at all in the mainstream press. So let's talk about this a minute. He writes, There is only one way to describe the cold-blooded massacre of 49 Muslims in New Zealand. It is evil, fiendishly evil. No condemnation of this heinous, cowardly act can be too strong. Uh, This act was unbelievably evil. And the quote of the week, last week, was... Matthew 5, 43 to 48, where we talked about how Jesus' command was to love our enemies and pray for those who even persecute us. So even groups, Muslims or whoever that might persecute us, we are to pray for them and love them. And this type of act is nowhere commanded in the New Testament, nowhere whatsoever. So to blame this on Christianity or blame this uh, on those who follow Jesus, is, is, simply, is simply ridiculous. These were Muslim worshipers who were mowed down while performing their Friday prayers in their mosques. They were not military combatants. They were not terrorists, but they were Muslims. They were foreigners. Therefore, reason their killer, they must be eliminated. 
And from what we understand, the shooter was a right-wing extremist, a white supremacist. And of course, we have to think about right-wing as defined in the U.S. versus right-wing. We're going to talk about a story later about the right-wing that's def- uh, defined like in uh, Italy, uh, right-wing, far-right extremist. Someone, at least today here in the U.S., someone that's on the right wing is going to be considered a, a constitutionalist, a federalist, a weaker federal government, stronger state and local governments. That's uh, typically of a Judeo-Christian value system. That's very, very different than the right wing of, let's say, um, Nazism or Italian fascism. Those are two very different things. Those ideologies, they put the, all the power in the state, whereas the right wing here in the U.S. wants to put the power in the local governments, more power in the local governments. As the Tenth Amendment says, if you're not familiar with the Tenth Amendment, I, reckon, I, I, I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with it because <laughs> it's very important. kind of defines what federalism here is in the U.S. Any powers not invested in the Constitution and the, and the federal government are reserved for the states and the people. That's just a, that's just a little bonus there. We got, so we got to be careful. And, and, and again, with you know, who we want to pigeonhole and, and put this guy with, because those on the right here in the U.S. could very easily do that to the left. Given some of his views, we could say, oh, this is, this is left-wing extremism as well. We could put this guy on the left, given what some of the stuff this guy believes, as we'll get to in a minute. But this is where we must not overreact. And he quotes uh, Dana Bash of CNN, who basically tr- blames Trump and Bi- Breitbart and all of this for that. It's just, it, I'm sure it didn't take long before they saw what happened and immediately knew how they were going to steer the conversation, how they were going to frame the, the shooter, and in what camp here in the U.S., that they were going to put the shooter on, which, of course, is ultimately, I think, in their minds, the most important. How do we exploit this tragedy, this horrific, evil tragedy for political points, and to hurt the man we hate more than any other man in the history of mankind to walk the earth, Donald Trump? I think they hate him more than they hate like Hitler or Mussolini or Che Guevara. Name your... Name your dictator that's murdered millions of people. This was not the crime of all white people. This was not the crime of conservatives in general. Especially considering he himself said he was not a conservative. He says conservatism is dead. We're going to get to his manifesto in a minute. Oh, and I haven't mentioned his name. And by the way, I don't care. I don't care to mention his name. However, pray for him. This was not the crime of Donald Trump or his supporters, especially since his political views are different. This was the crime of a sick, demented, evil individual, a man who apparently felt solidarity with others. And we're going to get to uh, another man. There's a story out of the AP that kind of his manifesto resembles a mass shooter out of Norway named uh, Breivik who killed uh, 77 people back in 2011 for, the, for similar reasons. Put another way, if conservative America thinks we need 
better border security, that does not make him a partner in this heinous act. Or if conservative Swede thinks that Muslims need to become more incorporated into the larger society, that does not mean he wishes for their death or, God forbid, would try to kill them. And look, when Western governments suppress free speech, as we are seeing all over in Europe, we're seeing in Canada, there are many people who want it here, they just haven't been able to get it into legislation yet, to, to make criticism specifically of Islam illegal. Or criticism of the, the government's immigration policies illegal. Or if you do criticize, they call you an Islamophobe and a bigot and you're um, xenophobic or whatever, and you stifle free speech. Sadly, people who may not have otherwise carried out these atrocious acts, they feel like that's the only way they can get attention. That, that's the way they feel like that's the only way they can move the goalpost. Now, that's no excuse for doing it. Even if the government were to clamp down and just and like kill anybody right, who engages in speech about Islam, which uh, happens in some places in the world, even if they were to do that, that's still no excuse for, for murdering innocent people. But all I'm saying is that when you squelch free sp- speech and any debate about your immigration policy is you're, you're labeled and you're targeted and you're shut down. It's kind of like if a pressure cooker never has the opportunity to release its steam, what do you think is going to happen? You're just going to move people further. Fine, you can say to the right, right-wing extremists, at least in the uh, European form, the fascist European form, you're going to move people further to the right. That's why free speech is so, so important. And that's why the adage that I, I disagree with what you say, but I would die to defend your ability to say it. That's why it's so important. And there are even there are still some people, even on the left, like the Bill Mars and the Sam Harris's, who still believe in free speech, even though, I mean, they're totally <laughs> on the opposite side of where I am, not to mention uh, uh, theologically as well as politically, given that they're atheists. But those people need to be able to have a voice, People between me and those people or whatever need to have a voice. You, you can't stifle debate and shut people down and, and not expect there to be consequences a, as a result. Again, no excuse for it, but this is the kind of stuff that happens. We've got to be able to have a free and robust debate about these issues without being labeled all these names or whatever. My point is that our response must be reasonable. We unequivocally condemn this evil act. Amen. And we unequivocally condemn the ideology behind it. Amen. There is no possible justification or rationale or excuse that can support this despicable massacre. End of subject. But let's not use the blood of these Muslims to score political points. That is, quite frankly, obscene. In fact, we could honestly ask whether there is real concern for the Muslim victims, including the wounded and the families of the slain, or whether there is a desire to make this about politics. And he gets into some pretty interesting figures here that I just want to touch on briefly. So he talks about 
the uh, Open Doors USA estimates 11 Christians killed every day for their faith. 11 Christians killed. Where is the outrage? Where is the outrage from the international media on that? That's basically uh, less uh, five days of that, and it's more than the number of Muslims killed in the New Zealand Christchurch Christchurch massacre, which, I mean, it really especially pains me that the place where these precious people were shot was in Christ, a place called Christchurch. That is just, as a Christian, that just, it does, it, it hurts, and it's, it's a very sick, 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 um, sad irony that, the, that the, the man who told his followers to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, to put away the sword, those who live by the sword, die by the sword, the, the namesake of that town is where that happened. It's very, very sad. As for worldwide terror attacks, he quotes a 2016 study indicates uh, 450 of 452 suicide attacks in 2015 were by Muslim extremists. The horrific slaughter of these Muslims in Christchurch is despicable in every way, leaving in its trail an almost unimaginable amount of suffering and trauma. That's what should get our attention. This is not about Islam in general or about immigration per se, or about conservative values, or about Trump. It is about the evil of a fanatical ideology. It is about the murderous hatred of a racist white supremacist. That is more than enough. He also quotes uh, a few other studies. I mean, just recently in uh, Nigeria, in the town of Maro, 32 Christians were killed by Muslim terrorists. Did we hear about that in the media? Did we hear about that other than a brief passing in the international press? There was no candlelight vigils. There were no Muslim groups coming out to stand in solidarity with the Christians, at least not, not in any international way. Right, so this stuff is... This stuff is uh, going on in a in a this stuff is happening all the time so he also quotes another study from february 13th to march 15th of this year there have been roughly 150 terrorist attacks carried out by muslims worldwide many of them against fellow muslims i'll say this every time that the greatest victim of muslim terror is other muslims the sunni shia divide has killed more Muslims than uh, Islamic attacks on, on Christians. An example would be the attack by Sunni Muslims on a political gathering of Shiite Muslims in Kabul, Afghanistan, killing 11 and wounding 90. So I, I think the larger context is important here for understanding the fact that there, there is a, and look, I'm, I'm just not afraid to say it, there is a, a big political push to exploit this tragedy, this tragedy, this horrific tragedy for the gain of the political left. And it should not be this way. I don't think the right needs to do it. I don't think the left needs to do it. It's a tragedy. We need to be praying and continuing to pray that God's kingdom comes to the, uh, to the people at that mosque 
to the people connected to the mosque, to the families, and that, that God comes near to them and, and heals them and, and uh, brings more of them to himself. But we don't need to be using it to score political points one way or the other. Now, I want to get to a bit about the killer himself without mentioning his name. Uh, <clears throat> I mentioned this briefly a, a minute ago. This is from the AP, the New Zealand Manifesto. So this guy published this manifesto online. He live-streamed it for about, I think it was only about 17 minutes or so. It apparently took hours for Facebook to get it down. Uh, but this guy, he published a manifesto, and he apparently had some inspiration behind it. This is from, like I said, the AP, March 15th. The manifesto that the presumed New Zealand shooter published is shorter and, quote, more sloppy than the one written by a Norwegian right-wing extremist who killed 77 people in 2011, but expresses similar sentiments, a Swedish terror expert said Friday. Okay, so who is this guy? This guy is uh, Anders Bering Brevik, who, before he carried out his terrorist shooting in Norway, he posted a 1,500-page manifesto online before uh, carrying out the attacks. On July 22, 2011, Brevik killed eight people with a car bomb in Oslo and then opened fire at an island summer camp run by the left-wing Labor Party's youth wing, killing 69. And this is you guys help me understand this next sentence. He is serving a 21-year prison sentence. Did y'all? I'm going to say that again. This terrorist who killed 69 people is serving a 21-year prison sentence. Explain that to me. He's going to be out in what? Uh, 2032? 33? Whatever 2011 but tw- uh, plus 21 is. Um, that is... They really, really need to figure out uh, how to change their justice system. I mean, if you're not going to inflict capital punishment, the dude needs to have 69 life sentences for every person that he killed. Brevik's lawyer, Oystein Storvik, told Norway's VG newspaper that his client has, quote, very limited contacts with the surrounding world, so it seems very unlikely that he has had contact. Storvik was not immediately available for comment. Norwegian Prime Minister Erna Solberg told Norwegian broadcasters NRK that the shooter's manifesto, quote, unfortunately gives associations to a situation in Norway that she described as, quote, one of the worst in our time. So, there again, there's similar manifestos. It looks like the guy who carried out the New Zealand massacre had some inspiration from this uh, terrorist from Norway. On Twitter, Rainstorp noted that the New Zealand shooter claimed... He would leave prison after 27 years. Why would he think that? Why would he think that? Well, when, when his role model gets 21 years for killing 69 people, I mean, what, is this guy going to get 15 years because he, he only killed 50? 
course, this is New Zealand, not Norway. So hopefully New Zealand has it has their crap a little bit better. Uh, it's it's dumbfounding how these how these weak weak Western governments do not stand up to these atrocities in a stronger way. They are demented. How do you give a guy 21 years for killing 69 people? Okay. Uh, claims he would leave prison after 27 years and likened himself to late South African President Nelson Mandela, saying he would get the Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, there's really nothing. <laughs> uh, sorry, bro. You're not getting the Nobel Peace Prize. I, I certainly hope not. I mean, these days... It almost, it almost wouldn't surprise me if they just gave a flat-out terrorist the Nobel Peace Prize. I think that Peace Prize has just been politicized. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know that it's actually about peace, especially when you give someone the Nobel Peace Prize before they've even done anything. Yes, there might be a president of recent memory that I am referring to. Okay, this is the last one I'm going to get to on this, I think, because uh, there's some other stuff I want to get to. And again, I don't need to go into all the facts of this. This is, I mean, everybody's been reading about this for several days. So if you're listening to this broadcast, you know all about it. I'm hoping to provide just uh, maybe a bigger context than what you're going to get on the mainstream media, because it's going to be all about uh, Donald Trump is evil, Republicans are evil, white people are evil, and all of this. And that's and that's sadly, the the left is supposed to be colorblind. Supposedly, they were the ones that were supposed to kind of bring in racial harmony. But it seems like all they want to do is stoke division amongst people of different ethnicities. Uh, I even had a good friend recently telling me about this uh, one person, a professor that that came out and said that uh, it is dangerous that uh, white people are, are colorblind. It's dangerous that they're colorblind. Or the white people that are colorblind, those people are dangerous. Because then, therefore, uh, people of color are not going to get uh, all the benefits that, that they should be getting as, uh, because of things that, uh, horrible things that happened in the past. I thought that was the whole point. I thought the whole point was to be colorblind and to not judge one another by the by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. They have thrown Dr. King to to the woods. It's really sad. Dr. King was, he was a man of peace. He was a man of love. I'm not saying I, I necessarily agreed with everything about Dr. King, but his overall message was racial unity and racial harmony. Okay, I know this is Mitty's news brief. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get on that. But man, that guy was a hero, and they're taking his primary message in that historic speech and just calling it worthless. It's really sad. But let's talk about the this New Zealand shooter's political ideology for a minute. Let's talk about what this guy really believed. Is this guy a right wing Trump supporting? constitutionalist 
federalist uh, who believes in strong Judeo-Christian morality and government and freedom. Is that what this guy is? Is that who this guy is? Let's take a look. Let's open up his manifesto. This is from Breitbart, March 15th. New Zealand shooter hopes for U.S. civil war. Quote, conservatism is dead. Thank God. According to his manifesto, the shooter, who massacred civilians at two mosques in New Zealand's city of Christchurch, appears to subscribe to a number of ideologies. The document is riddled with white nationalist talking points, and the shooter describes himself as a, quote, fascist. He also castigates Muslims as, quote, the most, des- most despised group of invaders in the West. Yet elsewhere in the document, the shooter describes himself as a socialist, quote, depending on the definition. The shooter also declares his support for, quote, environmentalism, workers' rights, and, quote, responsible markets. Responsible markets, a buzzword, of course, for being the control of markets by the government. That is not free market capitalism. On the one hand, the manifesto presents the political left as an enemy that conducted a, quote, march through the institutions and describes Antifa, communists, and Marxists as anti-white scum. Elsewhere, the shooter writes that, quote, under some definitions, he is both on the right and the left. That's why, I mean, neither group needs to be using this guy to push their political ends. He's just, this guy was just a mess. He was messed up. And that's where he needs to be placed in the category of a guy that should have been in a mental institution. Elsewhere, the shooter disparages conservatism and declines to identify with it, writing that, quote, conservatism is dead, thank God, and calling it, quote, corporatism in disguise. Conservative, he says, don't even believe in the race. They don't have the gall to say race exists and don't even care if it does. Boy, I'd love to have a conversation with this guy. There is one race, the human race. There are many ethnicities. There are many nationalities, countries of origin, families of origin. I get it. But if we're ever going to have racial harmony, we've got to see ourselves as one people and can't be subdividing ourselves into a bunch of different groups. Look, Amongst people that are categorized as Caucasian, you have blonde hair, you have brown hair, you have black hair, you have red hair, you have no hair, you have gray hair. You have uh, uh, different shades of skin tone. Look at Italians versus uh, versus people in Ireland. Uh, it, it's or look or, or, or Swedes or Norwegians. Like you can you could you could even break Caucasians up by race and discriminate based on skin tone or color of hair or country of origin. There's no end. Because, I mean, you could, let, let's say that, you know, only the, only the only, uh, Caucasians existed and the various forms. You would still have bigotry. You would still have racism. You would still have, th- these things would develop. Why? Because ultimately, it is an evil and it is a sickness of the human heart. And it's, and it's monsters like this guy and many on the left, and we can say right-wing extremists, fine. I'll give you that. That continue to stoke racial 
division. I think that there was an opportunity in the first decade of the 21st century to really see racial harmony come about. And I think many on the left and some on the far right did not like that. Why? Because they exploit it. They exploit the division of ethnic groups to their to their political end. Divide and conquer. It's really, really sad. Yeah, you're right. I don't care if race exists. I don't care about the dude's skin color. You know, I'm a constitutionalist, federalist, libertarian, conservative. Okay? That's where I stand politically. And I'm a, I'm a Caucasian. Okay? If you want to label me. Give me 435 conservative, libertarian, African-Americans in Congress versus 435 liberal Caucasians. Okay? Left-wing Caucasian. I don't care. I don't care if the Supreme Court justice... who I, I, don't, I care about ideology. What is their political philosophy? Do they believe in constitutionalist freedom as defined in our Constitution, in our Bill of Rights? Okay, that's who I want. I don't care... If the color of their skin, I don't care their gender. Ugh. You're right. And it's people like this need, that need to be just in the, the dustbin of history. Because all it does is stoke more violence. The notion of a racial future or destiny is as foreign to them as social responsibilities. Right. Because conservatives are color. True conservatives are colorblind. They don't care. Parts of the manifesto appear to be insincere trolling aimed at sowing confusion about his motivations. At one point, the shooter blames his action on popular video game titles, saying, Spyro the Dragon 3 taught me ethno-nationalism. I have never even heard of Spyro the Dragon 3. In that quote, Fortnite trained me to be a killer. I gotta say, that's a bit disturbing. That's a bit disturbing. I don't know if it's necessarily true or not. I guess there are plenty of other video games, and you don't need Fortnite to train you to be a killer. But someone who's smarter than I am on the effects of video games on the psyche needs to look into that. That should be a bit of a wake-up call. Elsewhere in the document, the shooter identifies black conservative Candace Owens. (laughs) What? Candace Owens, hardly a white nationalist. Trust me, I've listened to Candace Owens a lot. I love Candace Owens. I think she's incredible. She's not a white nationalist, obviously. She's not a supporter of violence. As the person that has influenced me above all. Now, why do you think the shooter would do that? Who? Do you, I mean, this guy, and, and we're going to see when we, when we get to kind of his last main point. This guy had a strategy. This guy had a strategy. Why do you think he would say that about Candace Owens? I think it's obvious he wanted to give the media, he wanted to give the media fodder to go after her because the media hates Candace Owens. The media does not care about the glass ceiling unless that glass ceiling is broken by a leftist woman. They 
they would rather an old, pasty, white male leftist than a beautiful, black, conservative woman like Candace Owens. I'm, that's just the way it is. This guy has a strategy. This guy, as the title says, wants civil war in the United States. So, there, trust me, there, there's a strategy, and we're going to see. We're going to see in a minute, uh, uh, even see that even more clearly. In a video posted online, the shooter also tells viewers to subscribe to PewDiePie. Really, <laughs> subscribe to PewDiePie? Apparently, that guy has like a hundred million subscribers or something like that. I don't know. He's a he's a YouTuber that's been around forever. My kids like to. Uh, they have watched him at times. Let's see. I'm going to skip over that. That uh... Okay, here we go. Here we go. At three points in his manifesto, the shooter also states his intention to spark a civil war in the United States by triggering, uh, pretty sick pun, crackdowns on the Second Amendment. You hear that? His intention to spark a civil war in the United States by triggering crackdowns on the Second Amendment. Have any politicians in the past eight days been playing directly into this terrorist's hands? Hmm. We'll see. In his laundry list of motivations, the shooter spends the most amount of time discussing this goal, which he believes will ultimately ultimately lead to a fracturing of the U.S. along cultural and racial lines. Lines, the very thing we've been trying to fight against and trying to heal from, because we do, unfortunately, have a sad history of that, when we've been trying to, for decades to heal from it, and guys like this are trying to upend that, and politicians are even falling, falling for it. As he describes it, his attack will create conflict between the two ideologies within the United States of the ownership of firearms firearms, in order to further the social, cultural, political, and racial divide within the United States. This conflict over the Second Amendment and the attempted removal of firearms rights will eventually result in a civil war that will balkanize the U.S. along political, cultural, and most importantly, racial lines. Elsewhere in the manifesto, the shooter predicts that his attack will lead to, quote, calls for the removal of gun rights from whites in the United States. That is the plan all along. With enough pressure, the left wing within the United States will seek to abolish the Second Amendment, and the right wing within the U.S. will see this as an, uh, as an attack on their freedom and liberty. The attempted abolishment of rights by the left will result in a dramatic polarization of the people in the United States and eventually a fracturing of the U.S. along cultural and racial lines. So, enough of this guy's awful manifesto. He mentioned something about Trump also. It's not in this argument. Something about Trump. And Trump's, his, I guess, his inspiration. He's a, he's a white guy that's more of an immigration hawk or something. But as we can... Uh, so the, in some ways, he's going to like that about Trump. He's white. He's strong on immigration. But at the same time, Trump has said, uh, yeah, we're, we're building walls, but those walls are going to have doors. And people are going to be able to come in. They're going to be able to come in safely. Right, and come in legally. This dude 
is anti-immigration all the way. So you're really conflating it when you're trying to say that uh, this guy and Trump are um, on the same page, even on immigration. They are not. And, and look, what, what, what happened? What happened in New Zealand? New Zealand is already banning military-style semi-automatic weapons, uh, high-capacity magazines. And now you've got U.S. leftist politicians calling for the same. They're literally doing exactly what this terrorist wants them to do. This terrorist has had, I mean, I guess you can give him a little bit of credit. He's got some foresight. He knew exactly what would happen. And he's hoping, he's hoping it will start a civil war in the U.S. It won't. We're not going to take up arms and start fighting each other. I'm sorry. He's living in fantasy land if he thinks that's going to happen. But he will. it will create more uh, turmoil and uh, lack of societal cohesion here in the U.S., for sure. And look, this makes New Zealand less safe. They, they've had, there were more murders uh, at this mosque than like the entire previous year or something like that. I don't have the exact statistic in front of me, but it was like, it was a pretty amazing. And in New Zealand, you can own a firearm. So they're going to completely up in what's actually been a, a very effective policy. They're going to completely upend that uh, because, uh, because of this, this isolated incident. So uh, that's, that's an unfortunate casualty as well when you're, you're really starting in a, in a more enhanced way to take away people's right to defend themselves. Okay, that's all I'm going to say on that. Uh, again, I, my heart goes out to these people. I don't want to use it as a, as a political football on my side either. My prayers are with them, and even if certain people come out and say, you know, this is, real quick, you know, your thoughts and prayers, uh, I think it was uh, that one congresswoman who will go unnamed, uh, you know, your thoughts and prayers didn't do any good, you know, so why, you know, like, what's the point? In other words, so we need action, we need to do a big gun grab and take everybody's guns away. Uh, Here's the thing, that's actually an extremely illogical stance to take. That prayer doesn't make a difference. Uh, for one, you, you do not know that. You don't know how much prayer has actually prevented attacks like these in the first place, number one. And uh, number two, uh, perhaps prayer helped the guy not kill more because he could have potentially killed more. And number three, uh, who's to say that... Uh, that prayer is not working and helpful for these families in their healing and to heal their hearts and to help them recover from this tragedy. You throw out some tweet that prayer does no good as if there's any logic or fact or uh, reality behind that. I mean, I've seen prayer do a lot of good in my own life. I've seen God answer prayers pretty quickly. So don't sit there and pontificate to me that my thoughts and prayers aren't any good, like my thoughts aren't any good. <laughs> uh, as, uh, as Ben Shapiro says, uh, the, these new uh, 
congresspersons, uh, such fresh faces, so fresh, so face, such fresh faces of freshness. <laughs> it's, it's really sad. It's really sad. Um, but again, our hearts are with these people, and of course, as more information is uncovered, I will, of course, be uh, reporting that here. Okay, I want to move now to, uh, let's see. Yeah, let, let's, let's talk ISIS. Let's talk ISIS because, uh, well, it looks, like, it looks like the announcement I've been wanting to make is here, but not quite here, but is here. I, I don't know. I'm going to read uh, Fox News is, is there on the ground. They've done some reporting on this, so I'm, I'm going to put it out there. And by this time next week, I think I'll have a whole whole lot more to be able to work with. But before I get to that, uh, this was Wednesday in uh, typical Trumpian fashion that I, I just it personally enjoy. Um, this is March 20th, Fox News. Trump displays Syria map detailing ISIS territory loss. Vows terror network, quote, will be gone by tonight. <laughs> will be gone by tonight. Uh, ISIS, they'll be gone by tonight. President Trump on Wednesday brandished a striking map showing how the Islamic State's presence in Syria has diminished since he took office while vowing the deadly terrorist network will be gone by tonight as he showed reporters the tiny spot representing their last stand. Quote, I brought this out for you because this is a map. Everything in the red. I'm not even going to try to impersonate Trump. I've been work. I've been trying. I just, I, I can do Obama better actually than than Trump. Obama is easier. Trump is. He is hard to impersonate. Well, I've never heard anyone impersonate him actually well. Um, if you know of someone, let me know. I want to see it. Email me midisnewsbrief at gmail.com. <laughs> um, where was I? I brought this out for you because this is a map. Everything in red. This is on election night in 2016. Everything red is ISIS, he told reporters, pointing to a top image that showed large parts of the region covered in red. When I took over, it was a mess. Now, on the bottom, that's the exact same. There is no red, he said, pointing to an image below. Quote, in fact, there's actually a tiny spot which will be gone by tonight. Here we go. I mean, again, we are in the presidential campaign season. Apparently, every two years of our lives is consumed by a presidential campaign, which I hope it's not for you. I hope it's not for you. I hope you can take breaks. I hope you can take it in stride. Because following every little detail and minutia, unless it's your job to be a political analyst, I don't recommend it. (laughs) You will likely age much quicker than you would have otherwise. And polls are worthless right now, okay? <laughs> they are worth There's no way a poll is going to tell you anything about who's going to win in 2020. That's just a piece of free advice. So this is ISIS on election day. My election day. And this is ISIS now, he said. So that's the way it goes. Okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about his, his claim. Does it have some validity to it? And according to uh, Fox News's uh, Benjamin Hall, this is March 21st, well, yesterday, Thursday. Uh, I got this late last night. 
They are on the ground there in Bagus, Syria. The caliphate has crumbled. And the final offensive is over. While the official announcement hasn't yet been made, Fox News has been told that this village, the last ISIS stronghold, is liberated. And I think that's pretty accurate, that it actually is liberated, even if there might be some pockets of people in different places. Um, the, the village is essentially, it's liberated. And that is great news. Celebrate the news. Thank God for the news. Thank God for this. Thank God for the Syrian Democratic Forces, backed by the U.S. Air Force, with the help of leadership of, of President Trump and our military, to, to end this, this nightmare, this five-year nightmare. Uh, these, the, uh, we all know this. We all know how brutal and horrific ISIS was, and is. And they're not gone completely, but their physical caliphate is. It's the first time since we've been here in Syria for five days that the bombs have stopped dropping and the gunfire has disappeared. We have witnessed the end of the caliphate. The brutal empire that once ruled over eight million people is gone. Troops here are now bringing down the black flags of ISIS. I mean, what an honor it would be. Imagine you're in the SDF and you get to go and you get to rip down that, that terrorist flag. The flags no longer fly over the town, instilling fear. And that's what they were. They were fear machines. They were terror machines. The last five days, Fox News has witnessed the last major offensive up close, with U.S.-backed SDF forces attacking ISIS from three sides, pushing the fighters back, house to house, then tent to tent against the Euphrates River. And look, in the, the SDF, knew that America unequivocally had their back, that we were their Air Force. And that gave them more confidence and more ability to go in and finish the job. I mean, I remember being just dumbfounded that we let this group just grow and fester. We could have stomped it out quickly in the beginning and formed a coalition and been the Air Force then and had, have forces on the ground take them out. Let's do this. Let's take care of this rogue group. Brutal rogue group. Look, they've got a physical presence. They've got a caliphate. They've got, I mean, they're making millions of dollars a day. Literally, ISIS was making millions of dollars a day off of oil refineries. And we didn't go in and bomb those refineries. We didn't go in and bomb and take out their source of income. It, it was beyond me. Inside Bagus, it's easy to see how they hid for so long. Not just in tunnels, but trenches and hundreds of cubby holes covered by tarpaulins, which are these uh, kind of canvas blanket type things, which blend in perfectly to the dirt. In the end, the majority surrendered. In fact, since the start of the year, about 60,000 have dripped into the desert, and most are now held in camps. Pray for those ISIS people. Not, that, not just that they've, now they've surrendered, but that they turn away from their horrific ideology. There is a major concern about what to do with the camps, though. The SDF has asked for U.S. support in setting up a tribunal here to prosecute them. The final corner of the caliphate was in the far eastern desert of Syria. It was where ISIS first captured territory 
and is where they finally lost. The clearing operation is now underway in the town, and an announcement is expected soon. None of the ISIS leaders are there, though. Where's Baghdadi? I mean, doesn't he believe if he were to die in holy war, he'd get his 72 virgins and an eternal paradise? Not quite. Nowhere to be found. And it makes you wonder, who's hiding this guy? I mean, or is, or is he just out there in the desert? I mean, is, is, he, is he hanging out in uh, some Muslim country somewhere? Is he hanging out in some Western country somewhere? You, ne- you never know. You seriously never know. But this guy, that guy, of anybody, he's got to be caught and brought to justice. So, good news. The town is essentially liberated. Uh, and that's something we should all we should all celebrate and be grateful for. Syria is going to get interesting, which I'm going to try to get to in a minute. Syria is uh, is interesting and is going to get more interesting. But now you basically got uh, three civil wars. Uh, there's not just one civil war in Syria. There's uh, between uh, Assad and the Iranian Russian. Uh, kind of axis of evil, but there's other civil wars uh, as well. So we're going we're gonna to briefly touch on that because I think it's important to the development of the fall of ISIS and really kind of the, the shaping of the Middle East. But I'm very excited about this news because uh, while it's not an official policy shift for the U.S., it is very good for Israel. What is it? President Trump says it is time for the U.S. to fully recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe that since Israel took back the Golan Heights in the 1967 Six-Day War, in a defensive war, I'm sorry, since Israel took back the goal, uh, took the Golan Heights in the 1967 Six-Day War, the U.S. has not officially recognized Israeli sovereignty over it. Giving up the Golan Heights is a is a death sentence for Israel. Maybe I'm, that's probably overstating it. It is an incredibly important strategic position. Just look it up. Go to Google Maps. Look up Golan Heights. Zoom out, and you'll see how important of a strategic position that is. I've seen it with my own eyes. And I fully understand why Israel needs that. It's been used against them multiple times for ground invasions. If they give that up, right, they're going to be susceptible to more ground invasions. And they won't. They're never going to give it up, right? But it's time for the U.S. to fully recognize that. Now, interesting, what is the time frame of Donald Trump saying this? What we've been talking about, I think, since day one here at Mideast News Brief, the Kushner, Greenblatt, Friedman peace plan is on its way. So I'm going to make a, a bold prediction with such foresight and, and intellect. Right? It's likely that this peace plan is going to give, uh, going to give Israel complete sovereignty over the Golan Heights, right? Trump's not going to say something like that a month before the plan comes out, and then the plan says something different. So I think it's pretty safe for us to assume that Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights is going to be pushed 
by the peace plan. Palestinians will never accept it. <laughs> will never, ever accept it. Um, a- again, it's likely going to be a two-state peace plan solution, which is why, whether I was for or against that idea, it doesn't even matter because the Palestinians are not going to accept it. Palestinian Arabs will not accept it. Oh, and, okay, we're going to get into this more, but Palestine was never a state, never a country. It was simply a region that was part of Syria under the Ottoman Empire. You had Palestinian Jews. You had Palestinian Arabs, Palestinian Christians. It's a region. It's never been a state. It's never been a nation. I was hoping to be able to get to the uh, history of the Palestinian rejectionism of peace with Israel but this week, but... Uh, I took too much time off. Okay, I'll just be honest. I took too much time off <laughs> okay. the, the past week and a half I, to, to get all the information organized and, organized and sorted because I want to do it right, uh, not just kind of throw something up there. But we'll get to it. We'll get to it eventually. Okay. Uh, it, it, I'm going to read just a story, right? This is what it is. Uh, you can agree with it. You cannot agree with it. I think, I think Jews should be able to build wherever they freaking want in their own nation. West Bank, Gaza. I wouldn't want to be in Gaza, but I mean, if they want to live there, they want to live there. I don't know if y'all remember. I remember. I watched it back in 2005 when Jews were ripped out of their homes so we could give Gaza to a terrorist group. And so that terrorist group could then start firing rockets at Israel. Really? Why would we do the same thing in Judea Samaria, also known as the West Bank? Let's rip Jews out. And who's to say the same thing is not going to happen, especially since we know that the Palestinian Authority is a terrorist entity because they pay the families of terrorists pensions and they they, uh, honor terrorists as martyrs and heroes. So you know what? Some Jews are going to build some settlements in the West Bank. I don't care. More power to them. Netanyahu vows to build new West Bank housing following terror attack. This is the Jerusalem Post, March 19th. Israel will begin building 840 housing units in Ariel, uh, which is in the West Bank. If you look on the map of the West Bank, it's almost right in the middle, a little bit to the left of the center. Uh, very center of the West Bank. So this isn't <laughs> this isn't on the demarcation line, the 67 demarcation line. This is like this is in the heart of the West Bank. Prime Minister Netanyahu said on Monday in the aftermath of the terrorist attack near the West Bank city the day before. Speaking Monday during a visit to the aerial junction where two people were killed, the Prime Minister insisted that terrorist attacks would not persuade Israel to withdraw from the region but would rather lead to increased settlement activity. Quote, Tomorrow we will begin building 840 housing units in Ariel in a new neighborhood, as was approved two years ago, said Netanyahu, who was accompanied by Ariel Mayor uh, Shaviro and the commander of IDF Central Command. Quote, These terrorists will not uproot us from here. The total opposite will happen. The more they afflict us, the more we will grow and flourish. Netanyahu said, our power is tremendous. 
Reminds me of that early Christian saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I mean, typically, persecution will cause groups to, to flourish in a lot of instances, especially if God is with those groups. And I personally believe that God brought Israel, um, God brought Jews and reformed the nation back in 1948. And so that's why over and over and over again, uh, the Arabs have planned for the destruction of the Jewish state. And look at it now. Look at it now. Uh, Flourishing in many, many ways. Many ways. So I I think ultimately this is why we need a one-state solution. What, are we going to rip Jews out of their homes in, in, the, in uh, the West Bank to create a two-state solution? I mean, that's what a, a boss has said multiple times. When there's a Palestinian state, there won't be a single Jew left in Palestine. Uh, r- racism a bit? Uh, I mean, if... if so. We're gonna have to have we're gonna have to have a one state solution uh, of some type. The question is what that looks like, and whatever it is, it's got to protect the Jewish population. But it is funny how it is uh, funny in a very sick way how it's okay to rip Jews out of the West Bank, right? But you can't uh, rip Arabs off their land and bring them to Jordan, which was actually the original two state solution. Look, there is and there was a two-state solution. It's called Israel and Transjordan. And after ripping Transjordan away, ripping what is now known as Jordan away from the Jews, then they took Israel, what was left, and they and they sliced that up. So, uh, which is about a little less than half, I guess. So, I mean, they the Jews ended up with next to nothing of what the territory that they started with. I'd love to do a whole, I'm going to do a whole separate episode on that because we've got to talk about the legal case for Jewish hegemony in Israel. Israel, West Bank, Gaza. There is a legal case, very clear, documented legal case that needs to be presented. So uh, I will be doing that probably on some type of supplemental broadcast in the future. All right, so that's happening over there. Uh, let's see. Real quick, I, there's there's a lot. I'm gonna. This will be linked to at MideastNewsBrief.com, but it's worth a read because Syria is now. Uh, uh, you got you can't look at just the Syrian civil war. Syria's civil war is not one, it's three. Um, let me just give you a quick summary, because there's a lot in this article, but it's basically, basically this. Um, in the northwest province of Idlib, you've got the uh, Turkish Sunni Islamists, right, that, that are fighting and trying to, to uh, maintain control of that area. That's about 10% of Syria. So that's in, like, again, northwest province, Idlib, that's what's going on. Then you've got the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces that are east of the Euphrates River, which is on the east side of Syria, right? Uh, now, that civil war is pretty much over, but uh, there's, there's still going to be some guerrilla fighting, I'm sure, going on there. That's 30%. Uh, and the SDF, the Kurds, they're going to want that. They're going to want that. Um, and 
Assad and Iran and Russia is not going to want them to have that. So the U.S. is going to have to figure out, is it in our strategic interest to help them maintain control of that area? Um, or are we just going to get into another Iraq situation? Um, and then in the other 60% of Syria, you've got the Assad regime that's backed by Iranian proxies, Russia, uh, and now, well, maybe not and now, but also Iraq. Iraq, the country that we supposedly liberated, is working with the largest state sponsor of terror in the world and working with Syria. So they actually held a, what's called a, they call it a tripartite meeting in Syria. And I mean, basically, they're discussing, they want the U.S. out of there. They, they want the Kurds out of there. So they're, they're essentially discussing how they can eject the people they don't want out of there. So that was a meeting that, that happened recently. Again, that'll be linked to at midisnewsbrief.com. I was going to go into it, but time is of the essence. So, but I do want to get into, uh, you know, I interviewed just, I, I hope you guys did. I loved uh, the interview with, with Thanny last week. Uh, we had a great time, and I learned a lot about Lebanon. Uh, again, it's, it, Lebanon, it, you know, it kind of seems to be an afterthought at times, but it's right there. It's right in the heart of things. It's right by Israel, um, and it's, it's what happens in Lebanon is, is very important. To the, re- to the region, especially considering the, the terror group that has a, a permanent residence in southern Lebanon, Lebanon called Unifil. I'm sorry, Hezbollah. I looked at Unifil as I said the word. Uh, so this is from, uh, from the Jerusalem Post uh, today, March 22nd, 2019. Unifil confirms existence of six tunnels in South Lebanon. So, I mean, that was kind of the question uh, Thani posed last week. Uh, what has Hezbollah been up to? <clears throat> well, uh, we know. They, they've, been, they've been actively building terror tunnels for the past several years to, to be able to uh, work their way into Israel and carry out terrorist attacks. Fortunately, the Israeli military is so much more advanced than Hezbollah, they have been able to uh, do quite a bit about it. The UN Interim Force in Lebanon, UNIFIL, has confirmed the existence of six tunnels in southern Lebanon, two of which violated the Blue Line and crossed into Israeli territory. While UNIFIL said it could not determine who built the tunnels or when, Thinks pretty. We we know who built the tunnels. Uh, they were recorded by Unifil in the region of Kafrakila. After Unifil engineers used verification tools such as laser range finders to confirm their existence, though the IDF reported the existence of six cross-border tunnels, tunnels Unifil was able to visit only five of them, as one was destroyed by Israel's military before it notified Unifil. Unifil is said to have requested to enter one disused brick factory across from Matola after Israel filled it with liquid concrete. But the government of Lebanon refused to give it access as it was private property. The property was said to then be completely covered in blue tarpaulins within 24 hours of Unifil's request. 
Israel launched Operation Northern Shield in early December and destroyed at least five cross-border tunnels, either by explosives or by flooding with concrete. Uh, sorry, flooding with liquid concrete. Really is more than one way to skin a cat. Um, never thought about doing that, but if it works, it works. The tunnel underneath the brick factory was the first one to be discovered by the IDF and stretched some 40 meters into kiwi and apple orchards belonging to the community of Matola. According to the military, the tunnel, which stretched a total of 200 meters, took Hezbollah around two years to build. Two things. You're out there tending your orchard, and these terrorists show up. It's, it's, um, I, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. And that's why the Israeli military has to be just as strategic and as smart as they can be, and they are. They are. And I hope, given the fact that it took them two years to build these tunnels, uh, or this particular tunnel, and then the tunnel is destroyed, I hope it makes them think twice. I hope they feel it. I hope they feel the, oh my gosh, we put so much time, so much money, so much effort. Bye-bye. I hope they feel that. I hope Hezbollah feels that. They need to. If uh, they're going to be prevented from doing this stuff in the future, will it deter them? Probably not. They might, or maybe they'll just they'll, they might just switch some strategy. On Monday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres expressed deep concern about Hezbollah's t- tunnels. Lebanon's Naharnet News reported Guterres encouraged the Lebanese armed forces to quote conduct all the necessary investigations on the Lebanese side in order to confirm that the tunnels are no longer a security threat. According to the report, he also said that Hezbollah's weapons could, quote, jeopardize the stability of Lebanon and the region. He called on U.N. member states to, quote, carry out their duties and stop supplying weapons and military equipment to non-government entities and individuals in Lebanon. Hey, when the U.N. says something right, I'll agree. I don't don't want the U.N. to be a bad organization, right? (laughs) I don't want them at all. It just seems like they do pretty idiotic things and evil things, especially in the poorly named UN Human Rights Commission, which makes you wonder, why do they have to have like 47, <laughs> 47 or so uh, uh, countries in the UN Human Rights Commission? The, the people that, the countries that should be allowed in the UN Human Rights Commission should only be countries that uphold human rights. You shouldn't be able to be on that commission simply because you're in the UN. I mean, you're going to put ISIS on the UN Human Rights Commission? No, it, should, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And I think, I think ultimately, I believe the reason why, as what's been happening recently, is they have a whole separate agenda item, agenda item seven, to bash Israel. Whereas agenda item five is for discussing human rights abuses amongst various countries, they, they don't talk about Israel as one of many nations in Agenda Item 5. They specifically carve out Israel, give them their own separate agenda item so that these dictatorial, autocratic, terrorist states, communist, fascist states can spend all day blasting and just bloviating against the only true liberal democracy 
in the Middle East. It's really, really, really sad. And that's why, again, I, I don't see the UN as a, as a legitimate organization. I don't, or that would be put to a stop. But look, if they say something right, if they condemn uh, what Hezbollah is doing in Lebanon, well, good. I'm, I'm glad they did that. And I will say, amen. I agree. So, all right, that will do it for this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Remember, you can uh, find us online at mideastnewsbrief.com. Also, I've got the podcast in several more uh, venues. So not only can you get it in iTunes, you can now get it in uh, Stitcher. You can get it in Spotify and TuneIn Radio. So whether you're Apple or Android user, there's plenty of options for you now. So be sure to subscribe there if you have not already. And again, all of the articles referenced in this broadcast will be linked over at MideastNewsBrief.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and we'll see you right here again next week.